summer's almost over, guys. I can't even believe it. Travers weekend is upon us up at Saratoga. Stores are chock full of school supplies. Some local colleges and universities have already started classes. Let's just slow down a bit and enjoy those last bits of summer, please. No? Okay. Coming up on this episode of The Eagle, we'll go over the week's top headlines. They can't get the labor, especially during um, the busy and all-important tourist seasons because nobody can afford to live in these communities. We'll talk to health reporter Rachel Silberstein about the impact of a potential merger of two of the region's hospital systems. Most people don't realize that a number of very common and potentially life-saving reproductive health services is shrinking in New York. And meet our newest arts and entertainment reporter, Katherine Kiesling. I think arts and culture is like such a cool way for us to understand the world around us. This is The Eagle, a Times Union podcast, a look inside our newsroom. I'm Jessica Marshall. If you're enjoying this podcast, take advantage of all the Times Union has to offer and support our efforts to bring in you award-winning journalism by becoming a Times Union member today. Go to timesunion.com slash subscribe. Welcome to The Eagle. I'm Jessica Marshall. Up first, let's discuss what appeared this week in the Times Union and on timesunion.com. All right, back again with Times Union Editor-in-Chief Casey Seiler. Let's talk about the top stories, and we'll start with the results of New York's not first, but second primary election of the year. What happened? (laughs) Lots of stuff. And yes, this is definitely going to be the last primary of the summer of 2022. This one, of course, for Congress, which was a big deal, and State Senate, which was a big deal, but kind of not in the Capital Region or Hudson Valley really that much. There were some tighter races down in New York City and on the State Senate side. But the big news around here was um, Pat Ryan defeating Mark Molinaro, narrowly the Democrat besting the Republican in the, a battle of county executives in the special election to see who will finish out Antonio Delgado's term. Delgado, of course, became lieutenant governor after Brian Benjamin, the previous lieutenant governor, faced federal charges. So that's a big pickup by Democrats, especially in the sense that Ryan really tried to make the race about abortion and uh, sort of federalizing it, as they say, and noting that Molinaro, uh, you know, was going to be part of a Republican conference that if they do, in fact, become the majority in the House in November, might move to expand uh, bans or the, the further curtailment of the right to abortion a- across the U.S., Now, Molinaro has uh, already complained that Democrats uh, sort of stack the deck or put the thumb on the scale, use your your favorite metaphor, by putting the special election on the same day as the primary when they knew that Democratic turnout would would be higher. You know, more people voting is generally considered to be a good thing, but there you go. Meanwhile, out in Western New York, the race between uh, Nick Langworthy and Carl Palladino, which got a lot of national attention, 
ended with uh, Langworthy pulling out the victory. In both races that we just discussed, Molinero's defeat and Palladino's defeat, as Chris Churchill noted in his uh, column that is running in the Thursday print edition, it's sort of bad news for uh, Congresswoman Elise Stefanik, who backed Palladino and backed Molinero. It will be interesting to see if in his general election contest for the 18th congressional district, remember the special election was for the 19th congressional district, to see if Molinero will campaign uh, with uh, Stefanik. Stefanik, of course, is one of the most uh, vocal supporters of former President Trump in a district like the 18th, which is considered to be sort of a purple district, you know, a little bit of red, a little bit of blue. It'll be interesting to see if Molinero seeks uh, that kind of sort of red meat uh, support that that Stefanik has been offering up. Palladino's defeat is seen as a victory of kind of the state Republican establishment. Nick Langworthy is, of course, the chairman of the state party over, I think, what you would have to call kind of the the wingnut wing of the party. Palladino is, of course, famous for sexist, racist, and otherwise uh, outrageous remarks. And his primary battle against uh, Nick Langworthy was uh, no exception. Well, I think it would be a pretty large understatement to say that we we are going to have a lot to look forward to uh, reporting on as we get closer to November. All right, switching gears, uh, let's talk about Hudson Valley Community College initially rejecting the state's COVID-19 vaccine mandate. Uh, and we broke some news there. So tell us what happened with that. HVCC in Troy over in Rensselaer County, very quietly over the course of the summer, rejected unilaterally uh, the system-wide SUNY student vaccine mandate for COVID-19. And when Kathleen Moore called last week to ask them about this, our education reporter received a two-page written response in which the vice president for student affairs wrote, and I quote, vaccination does not prevent infection or transmission of the virus. As one example, U.S. President Joe Biden and First Lady Dr. Jill Biden have recently become infected after being vaccinated and boosted. Now, as we have reported and as numerous scientific reports have shown, getting vaccinated reduces the odds that you're going to be infected. And if you do get infected, it makes it far less likely you're going to end up in the hospital or the cemetery. So it was obviously a very strange decision. Uh, HVCC said that this was a decision that had been made by the Board of Trustees in consultation with county leaders. Rensselaer County is um, led by uh, Republican County Executive Steve McLaughlin, who has been no fan of vaccine mandates. Now, Kathleen reported out this story a week ago, Wednesday, and of course called the SUNY system looking for comments. SUNY said, well, our vaccine mandate for students remains in effect across the system. And then on Thursday, the day after our story ran, they sent a letter basically telling HVC they had until Monday to come correct and go back and put the the vaccine mandate in effect, which HVCC did, changing their website and saying HVCC must comply with the system-wide mandate. Now, for any student who is not vaccinated and thought they wouldn't have to get vaccinated, 
they've got uh, some work to do because classes begin next week. I believe they were given sort of a 30-day window to begin their, their round of vaccination. So we will see how that goes if there are protests that come as a result of this. But there you go. All right. Well, speaking of the state university system, let's go to another one of its uh, schools, the University at Albany, where something rather odd happened this week. I guess it's fair to say what happened on the campus on Monday. Yeah. Monday evening, a notification went out from the university police force. They're required to put those out in the event of an incident that, uh, or an alleged incident that the campus might want to be informed about. And this was the case of a car containing uh, two adults and a child, I believe, uh, got a flat, pulled over. Uh, It was alleged that they were then set upon by two men in another vehicle who flashed a gun, robbed them, briefly kidnapped the child, drove away, at which point the two folks in the vehicle who said they had a flat gave pursuit, called 911. The child was let off by the side of the road and retrieved, and uh, investigators showed up, got information. And then uh, initially the report was that the couple had ceased cooperating with investigators University police later said that they were able to subsequently contact the couple and that they they were uh, cooperating as well. But a very strange story, needless to say, university police said that there was no reason for anyone on campus to think that there was any sort of ongoing peril or threat, but definitely a, an episode that raises a lot of questions. Certainly. And it is a relief to hear that no one was injured uh, in a situation like that. All right. One last topic. Uh, This was one of our most popular stories, if not the most popular story this week on our website. It should resonate with anybody who grew up in the Capital Region or lived in the Capital Region, say, in the last 40 years or so. And it has to do with Water Slide World. So tell me tell me what was going on this week. Um, yeah, water slide world in Lake George, uh, an outpost of fun for uh, an entire generation or multiple generations of Capital Region residents, as well as uh, visitors to uh, our area and, of course, the North Country. Uh, I believe the term is uh, number one in family fun. To coin a phrase, yes, very good. The attraction, which has been closed down for a while, uh, you know, it's 12 acres right on the corner of Route 9 and 9L. It's been purchased by Shemmerhorn Real Estate and will be turned into affordable housing uh, with some light Adirondack-themed retail and dining options, as they say. So definitely the end of an era for uh, regional recreation, but a good thing because Lake George, like so many communities across upstate, are aching for affordable housing. You know, we've reported on this all the way from Newburgh to Hudson to Saratoga Springs to Lake George. These businesses are dying in many cases for labor, but they can't get the labor, especially during um, the busy and all important tourist seasons because nobody can afford to live in these communities. 
So this is this is a good thing, at least provisionally, and um, and we'll see how the project develops. But Jess, I just want to say I know the your desire to include the Waterslide World jingle this uh, in this podcast is going to be a strong one. I just remind you that it's a complete earworm. If you put it in the podcast, it's going to stay in people's heads all day long. And I just don't think that we as a responsible news organization should be doing that. And I just ask you to bring best practices to bear as you, as you put this together. You bet. Come on, baby, gonna slide, slide, slide. Come on, baby, gonna glide, glide, glide. Come on, baby, gonna slide, Sorry, Casey, couldn't help it. All right. Thank you so much. Uh, and we'll check back in with you next week. All right. Thanks, Jess. Exit 21 off the Northway, I-87, one half mile south of Lake George Village. As always, you can learn more about all of the topics and issues that we discuss on this podcast at timesunion.com. And you can follow Casey Seiler on Twitter at Casey Seiler, all one word. Okay, let's dive into some health news now. St. Peter's Health Partners and Ellis Medicine are in negotiations to merge under the St. Peter's system umbrella. Ellis is currently a secular hospital system based in Schenectady. St. Peter's is a Catholic-run organization and the second largest system in the region. That means a merger would potentially shrink access to reproductive care in the capital region. There have been efforts to block the merger since it was first explored for those reasons and others in 2020. Schenectady officials have backed those efforts, as have civil rights groups. It has caught the attention as well of Governor Kathy Hochul and State Attorney General Letitia James, though neither have directly intervened as of yet. Times Union Health reporter Rachel Silberstein looked into the implications of the merger and how it could restrict care in a blue state that's actively trying to strengthen abortion protections. I spoke to Rachel recently to learn more. What's happening here? Two major hospital systems are merging or planning to merge. Like, what's what's the scene? Over the last 10 years, we've sort of seen the healthcare system consolidate across the U.S., but also in New York. The Trinity Health-owned St. Peter's Health Partners is in the process of merging with the last independent hospital in the capital region, which is Ellis Medicine in Schenectady County. So with this merger, the capital region will essentially be left with two healthcare systems, right? Albany Med and St. Peter's Health Partners. And there is a major difference between those two that's relevant in particular here. St. Peter's Health Partners is governed by the ethical and religious directives that are published by the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops, which restrict doctors from providing abortion, sterilization, and contraceptive procedures. It also constrains doctors in how they handle miscarriages, um, which could really put women at risk. And so my story sort of, given that you know New York often touts its strong abortion protections, which predate the 1973 Roe v. Wade decision, but most people don't realize that a number of very common and potentially life-saving reproductive health services is shrinking in New York for another reason. Specifically, what kind of services are we talking about potentially losing here? So the Bellevue Women's Center is one of a few very well-known birthing centers in the capital region. If these two hospitals merge, doctors at that birthing facility will 
no longer be able to pro- provide certain contraceptive procedures like implanting IUDs or often during a C-section, it's the safest time to do a tubal ligation, which is sort of a, a permanent form of birth control. Um, and doctors at Catholic-run hospitals are prohibited from doing those procedures under the directives. The other times it comes into play is when there's a high-risk pregnancy and the mother is is in the process of losing a child or has a an ectopic pregnancy, which can be very dangerous. Um, and the directives essentially state that doctors must wait until the fetal heartbeat stops or the mother's like in severe in a dire situation where, you know, she's in have develops an infection or develops sepsis um, before they can do anything to induce birth or do an abortion, um, remove the fetus from the uterus, which would save save her life. Um, and mm-hmm. so those are the situations that advocates are really concerned about. Um, and the fact that women would be denied this life-saving care because of these religious directives, where, where the doctors would be in a position where they have to put these ethical and religious directives above sort of the immediate medical needs of the, of the mother. Now, you spoke specifically to Dr. Corinne McLeod for your story. She's an OBGYN who currently works for a practice under the Albany Med umbrella, but she's also worked at a St. Peter's run center in the past and has some pretty strong feelings on the situation. I, I like the term moral injury that's been used a lot in uh, medical fields these days. Yeah. Um, the feeling of not being able to do to practice the best medicine for your patients to give them the optimal care. You know, a lot of people in the medical field have been talking about it in relation to COVID, how they're, you know, feel like they can't provide people with care because of how overwhelmed the hospital system is. And it's a similar feeling, she said, for OBGYNs who are in a situation with their patient where they can't, where they're forced to, you know, they're constrained by these directives instead of providing the optimal care that they would recommend. Well, another issue, too, that you point out in your article as well is sort of the geographic layout of the capital region and the challenges uh, it would pose for women who might need to go for care, who live in Schenectady, but don't maybe have easy access to transportation or a facility where they can have these procedures done. They'll have to go all the way to Albany. That's right. And that's when it becomes like a real equity issue, because if you're a person who has a car and means, you know, it's, it's easier to transfer to Albany Med or to even like if you're in the ER and they have to make a decision um, because you're in the middle of a miscarriage, you know, someone with means or, or with contact with another doctor aside from their local ER might be able mm-hmm. to, you know, make the decision to leave the ER against medical advice and go to a different hospital that can perform this procedure. But mm-hmm. people who don't have those means are not, you know, informed of their rights, wouldn't necessarily know to do that. You talk to representatives from St. Peter's and from Ellis for this story. So what are they saying about this? So Ellis has entered into this sort of management services sharing agreement. Um, which is concerning some folks because now pretty much a lot of their top executives are hired by St. Peter's. Most of their services are managed by St. Peter's from nursing to supplies to, you know, the food services. And that sort of creates a conflict um, because the medical staff at Ellis aren't currently constrained by the directives. You know, when you're depending on staff that are bound by these directives, 
it makes it really hard to do these procedures that are that are restricted. Ellis has sort of re- deferred a lot of inquiries to St. Peter's, who you know emphasizes that when a patient is in a medical situ- a life threatening medical situation, abortions are always performed. The life saving procedure is performed. They're always acting within you know the realm of appropriate care to ensure that that people are safe. The reality is when I talk to uh, doctors and people who work at Ellis who really, and St. Peter's who do want to provide the best possible care, um, and they have an obligation, like a moral obligation to provide the best medical response, you know, they, they do find sort of like workarounds. They try to come up with a medical justification to do a tubal ligation or install an IUD. But even they feel you know, that they feel extremely uncomfortable with the fact that their hands are tied in these sort of really dire, life-threatening situations. So these huge hospital mergers have to be approved by the state health department, right? What are the what are the implications there? I mean, the state obviously wants to protect abortion access. The State Department of Health is the one that sort of signs off on these mergers. Currently, the law requires that there is a public disclosure process and a public review pl- process but by creating a management services agreement instead of a formal merger, it did not trigger the normal public review process and sort of enabled the two hospitals to consolidate services without that sort of public scrutiny. And so that's an issue that seems like a pretty big loophole. Yeah. And that's just sort of the way the law exists currently. The other thing is the attorney general's office in the past has gotten involved in mergers like these in other parts of the state and required like certain services to be preserved. There's legislation on the, that uh, lawmakers want to pass that would require not only for hospitals to disclose, you know, patients' rights and responsibilities and what services are provided, but also like do a review on how a merger, it would require the DOH to produce a report on how any restrictions um, at New York hospitals would impact re- local residents' abilities to access that care that is close to home. So they'd have to do sort of a review on sort of the landscape there and see what it looks like and how it impact the community. And that's that's something that's a little bit more thorough that's not currently required. Let's dive into some of the other implications of a hospital merger like that. It's not just access to abortion care that would change or be affected. What are some of the other areas of healthcare that might change? So the ethical and religious directives have, uh, in other parts of the country, not only been interpreted to deny women um, reproductive care, but also to deny gender-affirming care and you know LGBTQ-affirming care, and, and in some cases, end-of-life care. So if someone has would like to remove a feeding tube because they're terminally ill, that's something that the directives address. Um, and make it very difficult for, make it so that patients cannot feel confident that their wishes would be honored if they were in a situation where they wanted to end their life in a, in a compassionate way instead of suffering, without suffering. You can follow Rachel on Twitter at Rachel Silby, that's spelled R-A-C-H-E-L-S-I-L-B-Y. After the break, let's get to know arts and entertainment reporter Katherine Kiesling. If you're enjoying this podcast, 
Take advantage of all the Times Union has to offer and support our efforts to bring in you award-winning journalism by becoming a Times Union member today. Go to timesunion.com slash subscribe. Welcome back. You're listening to The Eagle, a Times Union podcast. I'm Jessica Marshall. Last month, we got a new face in the Times Union newsroom. Arts and entertainment reporter Catherine Kiesling, she goes by Katie, has joined us to cover that very active beat. I pulled Katie aside after a few weeks to get to know her better here on The Eagle. You are our newest arts and entertainment reporter. You've been on the job for a couple of weeks now and you're new to the Capital Region. Is that right? Yeah, um, I hit my official one month with TU last week. Congratulations. Thank you. Where do you come to us from? I am originally from what I like to call the farm fields of southern New Jersey, but I was Mm -hmm. in Syracuse before moving over to Albany for graduate school, but I'm a Jersey girl. You know, obviously your interests lie in the arts and entertainment realm, but, you know, more specifically, talk about what, you know, interests you in your beat. Yeah. So actually, before going to grad school and switching gears into a journalism career, I actually was working in theater. I studied theater and dance basically since I was seven. I went to undergrad for it and spent five years uh, freelancing in Philly, New Jersey area, doing just about everything from performing, choreographing, costume designing, directing, production management. Uh, And I worked full-time for a nonprofit performing arts venue called the Levoy Theater in Millville. I I think arts and culture is like such a cool way for us to understand the world around us. Let's talk about the stories that you've written thus far. Yeah, I'd love to. Uh, So uh, Brookside Museum in Saratoga, uh, they are affiliated with the Saratoga County History Center, is starting to forge this really exciting partnership with the Mob Museum out in Las Vegas, which is this huge, huge museum that is dedicated to organized crime. And it's like, it's pretty cool because um, the museum in Vegas is housed in the former like courthouse where you know some of these mobsters that we know of were tried it was really (laughs) cool to see that oh there is that kind of organized crime connection here in Saratoga which when you like take a step back and you think about okay like the racetrack and some of the things that are yeah yeah that are big in Saratoga it's like oh that makes sense. And, you know, again, being a Jersey girl, I love The Sopranos. I, I'm <laughs> like many people have found sort of a fascination with these organized crime stories. So I was super excited to, to get a chance to talk to uh, Michael Landis from Brookside and Michael Green from Vegas, um, who is hosting this talk about the connections between the two cities. And just like, really just kind of dive into kind of like the rougher edges of the histories around here um, that are, they're exciting. They're like a little salacious, but they're also like kind of foundational to, to the area and to, to the histories. One of our local, you know, sort of mobster 
Legends was also kind of a fictionalized on Boardwalk Empire, right? Yeah. It's set in Atlantic City, which Jersey Girl, love that. It's it's really good. The styling's fantastic. I love a good period production design. But Meyer Lansky, who was known as kind of the mob's accountant, he was more or less like the the financial keeper of all things mob. Um, mm-hmm. He uh, is a recurring character on that show. So, what was his tie to Saratoga? Was he from Saratoga? He did a lot with. Uh, some of the casinos around here and with the racetracks. And um, so Mob's accountant obviously like did a lot of illegal things. He only <laughs> served jail time and once and he served jail time that one time in Saratoga County for illegal gambling. He slipped up just enough that they were able to, to get him. Um, and he was in jail for, for a bit before he was released and then, off to, I'm, I think, off to Havana and all sorts of organized crime related stuff down there. But um, yeah, Saratoga County is where where they got the mob's accountant, which is pretty cool. <laughs> That's a great story. And, you know, obviously a great entry for you as kind of someone who's new to the area to kind of dive into our history and some of the things that we have going on at museums around here. Are, th- are there any other stories that you have pursued that you really enjoyed or that you're looking to pursue in the coming weeks? Yeah, I actually got a chance yesterday to spend the most like delightful hour and a half with Alex Torres of Alex Torres and his Latin Orchestra, which is this pretty big band in the capital region. They've been doing their thing for 42 years now. I have never laughed so hard during an interview before, um, and I'm working on on a profile on Alex and on the band. Um, and it was just like really cool to talk to this band leader who's leading sort of this like musical institution in the capital region. Like they've they've had some reach, obviously beyond the capital region. They've had some really awesome opportunities. You know, their music's been on shows like. Ugly Betty and Blacklist. Um, they've done some stuff for PBS. They've been to China, but they always come back to this region. And the way that they engage the community is like really exciting to me. Excellent. I look forward to reading about that. You're from South Jersey. Mm-hmm. You've come here. You've you've spent limited time in upstate New York. Obviously, you lived in Syracuse for a little while at school, but now you're coming to the capital region. So, you know, what are your overall impressions thus far of the arts scene, the entertainment scene here that you're covering? I am so excited to be in this region. There is so much going on, um, which at times, like from a job perspective, is like a little daunting to sit back and like, <laughs> Oh, wow. The capital region is huge. And there is, you know, there's so much happening. I mean, if you if you find yourself bored at night or on a weekend, like you're not hopping on Google and doing the simplest of searches like there's there's a lot that's going on. Like this last past Sunday, I went to um, Congress Park in Saratoga Springs and got to sit and listen to a free a staged concert version of Sondheim Sunday in the Park with George. Like, and coming, again, coming from the farm fields of South Jersey, like, I didn't have that, like, 
super accessible. Everything was, you know, at least a 30 minute drive and like only on the weekends and like there just like wasn't as much happening. Uh, so it's, it's really exciting to be in a region where there is so much happening. And there's a lot of exciting things I think happening. And I think that there are a lot of exciting experiments happening too. And just kind of like the arts and culture realm, like I'm thinking of another story I did noteworthy resources, building an indoor skate park and integrating that into like as a mental health resource. It's cool to see that kind of um, entrepreneurial spirit here too. You can follow Katie Kiesling on Twitter at Kat Kiesel. That's spelled K-A-T-K-I-E-S-S-L. All right, that's it for this week. I'm Jessica Marshall at Jess underscore on underscore ice on Twitter. We'll be back next week with another look inside the newsroom here at the Times Union. In the meantime, check us out on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and Instagram. Or head on over to timesunion.com for the latest news and features. The Eagle is a production of the Times Union. It's produced and edited by me, Jessica Marshall, with help from the Times Union digital team and the newsroom. Special thanks this week to Casey Seiler, Rachel Silberstein, and Katie Kiesling for their contribution to this episode.